This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, well, welcome. Thank you to everyone joining us from all over the world. There are people tuning in from the UK and Canada, Boston, Oakland, my hometown, St. Louis, Miami, Maui. I'm not jealous at all. Not jealous at all. Um, My name is Derica Purnell. I am a human rights lawyer and a writer. And I'm hosting today's conversation, the book launch of Anti-Racist Baby by Ibram X. Kendi, illustrated by Ashley Lukashevsky. It is my absolute pleasure to bring in Ibram X. Kendi. So Ibram is a New York Times bestselling author and the founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. A professor of history and frequent public speaker, Kendi is a contributing writer to The Atlantic. He is the author of Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction, The Black Campus Movement, which won the W.B. Du Bois Book Prize, and How to Be an Anti-Racist. His new book, which we will discuss tonight, and I encourage everyone to read and share with others, is Anti-Racist Baby. So thank you so much for joining. Hey, Mark, and for joining me in conversation about your book. Of course, yeah, it's a pleasure to to be in this conversation and for Imani to join us. Right, Imani? Yeah, you mind introducing us to Imani? You want to introduce yourself, Imani? Say your name. Imani. <laughs> so Imani is my favorite four-year-old and I think she'll be joining us for the conversation tonight. So welcome to you as well, Imani. I'm sorry that Haymarket did not prepare a bio for you, but I imagine we're going to learn so much from you being here tonight. Okay, so Ibram, would you mind telling me about the book? Why this book? Why now? Well, I think for, for me, it was a book to to read to Imani. And I we realized that we wanted to be deliberate about teaching her to, to be anti-racist. Um, we, we realized the studies that show that infants begin seeing race and infants even start internalizing racist ideas. Um, But typically parents imagine that their kids are colorblind or that it's too difficult to talk to their kids about race and racism. So so I not only wanted to to create a tool to, to talk to Imani about race and racism, but I also wanted to really start a conversation about the larger importance of teaching our kids about racism and being anti-racist even before they can fully understand it in the way we teach them about love and and kindness even before they can fully understand what that all means. Right, Imani? Right. Right, yes. You know, I have two kids. They're six and three. And I know that I even have some anxiety about talking to my kids about race. So to jump to how to be an anti-racism, I'm curious about how do you even start the conversation about race? 
So I think it's obviously it has to be age appropriate, but I think you can, I think kids see different colors. They see that some kids are darker and some kids are lighter and they see the many shades of, of human beings. And, you know, obviously young kids, you know, Imani knows her colors, right, Imani? You know your colors? Rainbow. Yeah, she knows the rainbow, right? And you can talk to kids about that all of these different colors are beautiful together, like the rainbow. Um, You can talk to kids about fairness or about rules. Imani knows that there are some rules that she's supposed to follow, and she considers some of those rules to be unfair. And, and we can talk about how certain groups of people uh, are forced to follow rules that other people are, are, are not forced to follow. I, I think it's also critically important for us to create mechanisms for our kids to ask us about racism. Mm-hmm. So that means, obviously, I've seen many parents who decided to take their youngest ch- children to demonstrations. So their kids can be like, well, what, 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 why is everyone, you know, demonstrating? So that gives you the opportunity to, to talk. Uh, you know, obviously, this this book is a tool for those conversations as well. Right, Mom? Right. Right. Yes. I love the, the, the mechanism, right? Like the entry points, you know, because if you don't do that, then children could pick up other habits. The the very first, the very first sentence of the book, which I love so much is anti-racist baby is bred, not born. You know, I, when I was a teacher um, at a freedom school, at a children's defense fund freedom school, one of the most jarring pictures that I that I remember was of children in like the tiny KKK hoodies. Like I didn't even know that they made like KKK like uniform, like you know, in that size. And so I I know that there are unfortunate, you know, groups of people in this country who like teach our children to hate at a very early age. But the large swath, I, I imagine, of like parents who um, who have children or even themselves hold racist like ideas or views about people, it's because it happens like happenstance, right? It's, it's not, that intentionality may not be there. So can you talk about, you know, the importance of breeding anti-racist children and how that system, how it could happen? What are, what do we risk by not being intentional about that? Well, I, I think that the unfortunate reality of, of living in America, living really across the world, mm-hmm. is that the norm, the normal ideas, the normal ideas coming from the media, coming from other children, coming from teachers, coming from the vast majority of people, what is typically said to children are racist ideas. Yes. And whether that's said indirectly or directly, whether that's said through a television or through, um, you know, through someone's words. And, and then we also, children also see that the, that they may see that the darker people have less mm-hmm. and, and, and the lighter people have more. And and then they're taught we're, we're all children are taught hierarchy. <laughs> and and so if you put those two things together, 
I don't think it's very difficult for a two-year-old, a three-year-old to say that younger, darker people have less because they are less and, and, and whiter people have more because they are more. And then they come home to their, to their parent from preschool or daycare and say, I want to be white. And, and then they're, they're, you know, if they're, if if their parents, their their parents are sort of horrified, Uh, just as a, a white child will come home to their parent and insinuate that they like that they're white, right? Um, and, and so I, I think it's critically important for people to recognize that the norm, <laughs> if we do nothing, then our children are going to be raised to be racist. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's why we have to actively teach them to be anti-racist. Just like, as you know, Derrica, if we do nothing in the face of police violence, if we do nothing in the face of racial injustice, if we do nothing in the face of food insecurity, of climate change, of voter suppression, of the normality of, of systemic racism, what's going to happen? That normality is going to continue. The same thing happens with ideas. So that's why we have to be unbelievably deliberate with our children, raising them to realize that just because someone has more doesn't mean they are more. Yeah, no, com- absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's um, the notion that if we just keep going the course that by default, we're going to default to these racist ideas because they are foundational to this exactly. country, foundations of this country. Um, yeah. As you were talking, I've shared this story a couple of times in the last week because I'm just really, really proud of my my six year old. And it's like you said, we're going to default to those ideas. He had a kid in his class that was um, pointing at all the boys in his class. And he was going, you know, you're a girl, you're a girl, you're a girl. And all the boys in his class were just mortified. They were just like, oh, no, like I'm a girl. Like, ah, like they were so angry. They were so insulted that this kid was calling them a girl. And then this kid gets to, to, to Juice, to my kid, and he says, you're a girl. And Juice goes, anybody can be a girl. Anyone can be a girl. And it's just like, yes, it's those sets of like interventions. And so that's how we stop transphobia, right? So making these interventions into, you know, what it means to be, you know, black or dark or, you know, I know I grew up with uh, people in my family who were nervous about letting their kids go outside in the sun for too long. Right. And so what sorts of interventions are we making to stop the default like transphobia or the default notions of racism? Because, again, they're so pervasive um, in our society. They, they are. And, and, and what's ironic about the story that you shared is how through the way in which you're raising Jews, you, you're protected him in a way against being or feeling bad um, because someone else was picking on him. And and so I think that when we teach our children um, anti-racist ideas or certainly, you know, feminist ideas or, or ideas rooted in the equality of cisgender and transgender peoples, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're protecting them. Mm-hmm. We're not opening them up. Um, but if we teach, if we have boys and, and we say things like stop acting like a girl. Yes. We're essentially saying it's, 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 you know, that is bad, right? If, 
if I if I say to Imani, oh my God, you know, I need to do something with your hair right now because it's out in the fro, you know, then I'm teaching her that there's something wrong with this style that that she loves. Absolutely. And, and, and so I think that we have to be sort of very, very deliberate in everything we say and don't say to our children. Yes, yes, because it's baked into our system. And so by the time, you know, again, just with juice, because I didn't realize how pervasive gender is in school. It's something you're constantly navigating, you know. So it, the where he's in school now, they have to choose which bathroom they want to go into. There is a separate jungle gym for boys and for girls. So it's just so by the time he's, you know, 30, 35, 40 years old and someone tells him, oh, everyone should be using the bathrooms together. He's just like whoa, wait, like my entire life, you know, we, I've been socialized that there's been two different rooms for people based on, you know, their genitalia. And it's just, yeah, with, with race, I imagine it's the same thing. So for people, what I'm hearing you saying is for people who are intentional about getting to the heart of, you know, what it means to be racist or what it mean, or what it could mean to be anti-racist. By the time they're adult, they're having to unlearn all of the racist ideas, all the racist behavior that has started way into their youth. Like, exactly. baby. Yeah, I mean, and so if you're a white parent and you live in a homogenous neighborhood and it's a wealthier neighborhood, um, and and you live closer to a black or brown neighborhood that that has less. You can deliberately teach your child that these these people who are white, they do not have more because they are more. <laughs> those people, those dark and dark, those those black and brown people, they are not less. And and and, and if we don't deliberately teach our children that. Mm -hmm. And what else do you think they're going to end up believing and thinking? Um, and then if we then simultaneously, when they initiate conversations about race and racism, and we say, no, let's not talk about that because it's too hard, we're essentially telling them not to talk about race and racism. And then they grow up and they're 35 or 45 and 55 and they struggle to talk about racism. It's an uncomfortable feeling that they have because they've been taught since birth that this is not something you talk about. You just act as if everything is cool, you know, especially if you're not victimized by the violence of racism. Yeah, no, that's a, such right. a good point. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and I know that there's, there's this impulse, I would imagine, from people who want to be good parents, like who see themselves as allies or as co-conspirators, who affirm and tell their children, right? You know, everyone's the same. Don't see race. Be colorblind. I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit about that, like that impulse of to, you know, to try to do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that obviously this idea that you don't see color is, you know, we've we've already sort of talked about why that's not, why we should not be teaching our kid that idea. But I think it's also dangerous to say to a kid, to say to a child, we are all exactly the same. And, and the reason why that's dangerous is because you're not teaching your kid about human differences. 
Mm-hmm. And and what you're saying is, okay, I, if your kid, if you're being taught to, if you're being taught by your, by your parent that everyone is exactly the same, and then you're also being taught by your, your parent that your culture, your beauty, the way you look, the way you act is great, <laughs> then what are you teaching your child? You're teaching your child that all the people who don't look like you all the people who practice a different culture, that they should be striving to be like you, that they should be assimilating into your whiteness. And if they don't, then that's a problem because we're all just as a historian wrote in in the late 1950s who imagined himself as a friend of the Negro, that we're all just white men with black skins. You know, and so, and this is the sort of teaching and then they wonder why their children consider kinky hair to be ugly. And then they wonder why their children are horrified by the cultures of other people. Right, Imani? Right. <laughs> yeah, and no, I think that's I think that's such, you know, such a good point. And one thing I've been really thinking about, especially as a black parent, and what does it mean to have your child be anti-racist as, as a black parent, right? What does it mean to teach your to teach your child this Is, with, you know, black children who grow up particularly like dispossessed, right? Particularly oppressed, vulnerable to all sorts of violence from their parents, their partners, you know, their siblings, the police, their teacher. I mean. It's, you know, black teenage unemployment rates through the roof. You know, they know, I, I mean, as a black teen, when I was a black teenager, I knew, you know, my school district, right? I knew which kids were allowed to be in advanced classes and which kids were kept out. I knew that my school district was heavily under-resourced compared to the white suburban school districts, you know, that surrounded us. And so I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, what's the what's what's the particular message for black families and black parents who are raising anti-racist children? What does that mean? Well, first, that just because you are black or your child is black doesn't mean you are automatically anti-racist. And so black parents, too, have to teach their children uh, to be anti-racist. And, and I think it's critically important. The, the way that sort of plays out is for a child, a black child to be taught by their parents that there is nothing wrong with you because of the color of your skin. There's nothing wrong with your people. There's nothing inferior about your people. The reason why your school district has less mm-hmm. has, is not because black children don't wanna pull up their pants. It's, it's, it's not because black children don't value education. Mm-hmm. It's to teach your child the reason why those police keep brutalizing you is not because you're more dangerous. It's not because you continue to be reckless with the police. It's not because there's something wrong with you. So you have to, and and to me, that's deeply, you know, we were talking earlier about, about challenging bigotry with your child being protected. There is nothing more protective for a parent of a, of a child, of a child of color, particularly a black child to teach that child that there is nothing wrong with them because they're gonna face anti-black racism. Mm -hmm. They're gonna be told no. They're gonna probably be brutalized because of the color of their skin. And so then the question that they're gonna ask when they're excluded, when they're degraded, when they're brutalized is why? Mm 
Mm-hmm. And if they don't have a consciousness about racism, then there's only other one other explanation, and they're going to blame themselves. They're going to say there was something wrong with me, and that's why I got beat up by the police. Maybe I should have done something differently. And they're going to question themselves in the way you have women questioning themselves when they're sexually assaulted. And there's nothing more horrific than a person who is a victim being taught to blame themselves. Right. And and if we don't teach them who the victimizers are or what the victimizer is, then they're only going to blame themselves. And then what's that's going to happen? That's going to affect their sense of self. That's going to affect their confidence. Mm-hmm. They're going to that's going to affect whether they're going after racism or black people. So they're going to grow up not only belittling themselves, but belittling black people. They're not going to be part of our struggle mm-hmm. against racism. Mm-hmm. And so for me, this is extremely important for for black for 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 parents of black children too to raise their kids to be anti-racist. Mm-hmm. No, yes. Um one of my favorite people in the entire world, Imani Perry, just wrote a beautiful essay in the Atlantic. And I can't remember the title, but it's something like, you know, blackness isn't the problem, racism is like exactly. racism is the problem. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is that there's an opportunity for self-hate to breed inside of Black children um, if there's not intentional critical interventions to reorient themselves, you know, in their relation to their skin color, their hair texture, their socioeconomic status, and then how they see, you know, other Black people, which, which I think is, I I don't typically think about that as being, like, racist ideas about oneself. I, I have thought about it more generally in a category of like self-hate or self-fulfilling prophecy, whatever the sociological term for that is. But yeah, to think about that as like, yeah, there's like anti-Black views to like hold that, you know, in one's body is, is traumatizing. It's, it's, it's traumatizing. Um, you know, you know, like Malcolm said, I'm sure you remember this speech when he was like, who taught you to hate yourself? Who taught you to hate yourself? Who taught you to hate yourself? hate yourself from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. And and it's and essentially you have historically have white people have produced these racist ideas that said that there were all these things wrong with black people. And not only have white people, of course, believed them, but black people have internalized them. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know, and, and I think it's crit if 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 our children are not raised to recognize that there's nothing wrong with black people. Indeed, to me, the only thing wrong with black people is that we think something is wrong with black people. There's nothing else. Um, and if we don't teach our children, and but not just black people, it's there's nothing wrong with black women. There's there's nothing wrong with black poor people. There's nothing wrong with black transgender women. There's nothing wrong with black prisoners. You know, it, it really goes on the list because of course you have some parents who will defend and say no. You know, I don't want you thinking that there's something wrong with black people or kinky hair or dark skin, but they're constantly belittling black women or they're constantly belittling the black poor. They're saying, no, don't hang out with those kids, yeah, you know, and, and and that's a problem, too. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question on the flip side of that, which is something that I have been fumbling through. Like This is this is now this is turning to a therapy, a parental therapy session. <laughs> and so um, Juice and I, we were reading this book called Malcolm Little, and it's about young Malcolm X. I don't know if you've read this book with Imani, but it's like 
in so many ways, Juice is finding himself in young Malcolm. You know, he's curious, he's playful, he loves his siblings, all of that. And so the story talks about his parents being a part of the UNIA, it's how they met, and then they moved to Omaha. And then um, when Malcolm was really young, we got to this page where, um, you know, white people go and they set his house on fire. And so Juice, like I said, he's six years old. We get to this page. You see the flames is beautifully illustrated. And he's just like, why did they did the people who set his house on fire? Did they know that Malcolm was in there? And I'm just like, oh, I probably should have read this book before reading with my kid. It's, it's one of the flaws that I have, I've learned. Yes, there. Oh, I love that too, yeah. Yeah, you get to a page and you're like, oh, wow, I didn't know there was a, a friendly police officer here. <laughs> <laughs> you have to do damage control. So yeah, so we get to this page and he's just heartbroken. He's just like, you know, do they want to, are they, were they trying to kill his family? And so now I'm just like... Well, what do you think? And he said, well, I know his parents were trying to get, you know, fight for equality because they were a part of the Marcus Garvey movement. And I said, yes. And he said, maybe they were trying to scare them because um, because of what they were doing. I said, yes, that's exactly right. And then he said, you know, you know, why do white people keep doing stuff like this? Like, why? You know, and then he says, you know, I like he was just so angry at like white people. So then about five minutes later, I'm just like, do you know who white people are or what that even means? And he's just like, yeah, my teacher's white. His teacher is not white, like not at all. She looks a lot like me. And I was just like, (laughs) you don't even know what who and what white people are and what that means. But, you know, through reading the story by Malcolm X has gotten very, very angry. And I've noticed, especially with the movement that's happening now, there's just been this fear that like, you know, we are raising like black, we are radicalizing young black people, you know, to hate toward, to have hate like towards people or towards, you know, police or towards any of any of the institutions or people who they affiliate with oppression. And so I'm curious about, again, as a black parent, like, like not understand, not seeing that as something that's like racist but also holding, like holding Juice's like concern of like associating like white people with oppression. So I just had to basically tell him all white people, you know, are not bad or evil or like want to get you or want to set your house on fire. You know, that that's not what it is. And again, he's six, you know, but it's just I'm curious about that side of it. Right. How do we navigate or hold like a, many of our children who are being politicized, right? And they know that they're black and they know that they're beautiful and they feel affirmed. They also know that, you know, they can be shot down like Trayvon Martin. Like what's the, I'm very curious about how that relates to the anti-racism conversation. So, well, let me just say that I, I think, I think that, story is an example of of the power of books and, and the power of a parent reading a book um, on race to their child, that it's going to potentially lead to, to, to conversations that you didn't even realize was, was, yes. was going to happen. And 
And like with any other, any conversation, there are times in which the conversation is going to be incredibly beautiful and fruitful. Mm-hmm. There's going to be times mm-hmm. which we don't really know how to answer those questions. Mm-hmm. There's going to be times in which um, we don't understand what they're asking. All of the above, but all of this is good. <laughs> you know, it's great to have these these conversations. And you know, I would just say that I think that there, as you know, there are. Um, there are people who are 40 years old who cannot really separate a Donald Trump from a white working class male who believes that one day he's going to be Donald Trump, who has been convinced by Donald Trump to support Donald Trump as opposed to working, as opposed to working with and unionizing with um, uh, working class people of color. And, and just as you, you have people who consider themselves having a racial analysis and can't separate a Donald Trump from a white working class male who is suffering under Trumpism. So, and you know, obviously this is difficult for even 40 year olds to really sort of understand. Um, and I think for, from, I think what we can do, I think as parents is, is really sort of figure out a way to maybe introduce a book on poverty or on class, and and so and 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 so that that then can pr- propel us to to really begin to understand that, well, the very people who probably were setting fire to his home were also against the people who were trying to unionize white workers in that very town. It's the same people, right? And they were opposing them for different reasons, but they were still the sort of same people, uh, if that makes sense. And obviously, unionized probably isn't going to be the word we use with a, with a five-year-old, but but I think we 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 get the point. But but for me, it's just about initiating these conversations. You know, we're not only talking about you know race; we're talking about whiteness and white people and the relationship between anti-racist and and, and white people. These are the conversations. We should be having, and I suspect when he's 12 years old, it's going to be even more sophisticated. And and when he's 24, he's going to be telling us what to think. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's telling us a thing now, right now. Yes, he's I was telling Anthony at Haymarket, because um, you brought up unions, it made me think about um, a couple of nights ago when we were praying. And he says, you know, mommy, how come we always pray for people who don't have clothes and don't have food and don't have you know, things they toys and things they need? And I said, because we have to remind ourselves that we have to go and like, you know, fight for them to get those things. And so Jews, he loves like Transformers and Marvel. So in his head, he conceptualizes struggle through villains and heroes. So he's just like, so we have to like prepare ourselves for the villains. And I said, yes. And he said, what are their names? What do we call them? And I said, we call them capitalists. And he said, capitalists? <laughs> and I said, yes. And he, he says, so capitalists don't want people to have enough food and clothes and toys? I said, yes. And why do you think that is? He said, because they want to have everything for themselves. And I said, yes, that's that's it. Like, that's capital. So maybe we can add union to the vocab for, you know, when they come back from St. Louis. But yes. <laughs> but, but and you know, I just, I mean, I hate to sort of continue to sort of make sure we're hitting this home. What you essentially did 
was you were able to think about the things that he understands, mm-hmm. the way in which he understands the world, his worldview, and then essentially integrate a larger sort of lesson about capitalism, you know, or about economic depravity or the cap- the accumulation of capital, yes. you know, to his understanding. And, and, and we, so, you know, when parents think about how do I teach my kids about capitalism or how do I teach them about racism? You have to think about it from their perspective. Exactly. Like that's where we have to start. Um, and, and, and I think it, it, you know, it'll come to us and, and certainly there'll be situations like that in which we can teach it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's, oh my God, there's so much like, Yes, like good stuff here because like with Imani and early in the conversation, you know, she or I can't remember that, that conversation early today where she says people have all colors and she's and she went, yeah, like a rainbow. Right. So, yes, it's definitely using the language that they already have access to the ideas they already have access to to introduce these concepts, you know, to them. It's 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 clear propaganda. We have to be propagandists for our children. Um, so I'm getting so many questions right now. So I'm going to ask you one more question before I turn to some of the, the Q&A. Maybe two more. Maybe two more. Um, so right now there is an uprising, one of the largest uprisings in um, U.S. history. Imani, you keeping me out of secrets? You going to tell her what you told me? I told you. I told him. Rainbow and rainbow tackle talk. Oh, <laughs> so cute. Thank you for sharing. Um, yes, yeah, so we are in the middle of an uprising right now. And there's been all these calls to defund the police and for police and prison abolition. And I'm just, uh, it would be helpful if you can talk about the relationship between anti-racism and this broader abolitionist movement, right? So, um, yeah, if you can talk about that, that would be helpful. So I think, I think you know, the, the term sort of abolitionist or abolitionism, you know, emerged during a period in which the vast majority of Americans who imagined themselves as anti-slavery mm-hmm. considered the best way forward to be reforming slavery, meaning they they advocated for the gradual emancipation of of black people. And then typically they also advocated for those black people once freed to be colonized back to to Africa. And and the reason why they advocated for, yeah, the reason why they, (laughs) the reason why they advocate, okay, let me finish this again. The reason why they advocated for the gradual emancipation of Black people is because they widely believed that these people were indeed beasts and they needed the sort of military hand of of slavery to keep these beasts, these animals in check. And that if they were free, they would just run up north, you know, violently sort of destroying civilization. And but if they gradually emancipated them, then, you know, we can then quickly civilize them and then send them back to Africa. This was the dominant um, viewpoint among people in the decades leading up to slavery who consider themselves in today's terms to be moderate or even liberal. Mm-hmm. And they considered gradual emancipation to be practical. They considered it to be politically expedient, 
And they considered those abolitionists to be crazy. Those abolitionists who were calling for immediate emancipation today, that slavery is evil, slavery is brutal, and it shouldn't live another hour. And, you know, obviously black people were calling for the abolition of slavery ever since 1619. But, but the reason why I mention this is because you have this same sort of divide right now between abolitionists and, and those who are seeking to reform the police um, or those who are seeking a gradual sort of emancipation of mass incarcerated people um, or, or those who are considering, you know, okay, you know what? There are more bad apples and, and there, are, there are sort of bad apples. And so what we need to do is, is sort of teach them their implicit biases, but fundamentally the structure of American policing, the culture of American policing is not broken. And, and you know, one of the things that I would sort of say to this is that for, for black people, I know, it's really hard for us to separate police from brutality. And so when people think about defunding or even abolishing the police, they're thinking about abolishing and defunding brutality itself. I've never really known American policing, whether in my lifetime or historically, to not be violent, brutal, mass incarcerating, occupying black neighborhoods. So I just don't understand why people think that it's impractical, that it's politically inexpedient to be advocating for the defunding or even the abolishing of police. But then again, I do understand it because they were advocating for that in the decades leading up to the Civil War. Yes, yes, yes. I think that I probably would diverge on one, like one point, which is I think that some of the people who were trying to, you know, the anti-slavery advocates who were looking to reform and change the system, who defended it, who were trying to find improvements, um, they, I think, like knew ultimately there would be like black people would either die out or get free. And I think that the tension was over the relationship of when and how that would happen. I don't know if people today who are like putting reform on the table are imagining a police-free society. I don't, I don't, that's, you know, I, I think that the, the the war was over whether and how like this would manifest and like the liberals and moderates who you're talking about, you know, I think they knew eventually probably we get around to it. I don't, I'm not so sure if that's, if that's the case today. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there are definitely profound, profound differences. And I think, you know, one of the the reason why I like to, to, to give that example is because for many Americans, it is as scary for them to have a, a nation without prisons and police as it was for Americans in 1840 to imagine a nation without overseers, masters, and, and slaveholders. They, they fear what's going to happen. Yes. They, they imagine that all these people right who are incarcerated, yes. these violent beasts who are being caged because they're beasts. They don't understand the reality of American policing. They don't understand the reality of who's actually being incarcerated. Um, and, and, and so I, I think that's why I wanted to compare that because now Americans can understand how ridiculous it was for those Americans in 1840 to imagine that a nation without 
overseers and slaveholders would be a nation that is going to immediately be destroyed. But that's precisely what Americans believe now. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Yes. Yes. So I am... Um, I ha- let me get some of these questions because my okay. phone is literally like blowing up. I didn't think nobody liked me this much, but these are all questions for you. This is this is not for me. Okay. Okay. So Allison Ward asks, I would also like to know what it looks like for a white child to actively be anti-racist. Oh, um, well, I mean, I think it really depends on the age of the child. But but I but I think in general, a, a white child, you know, studies show that by um, three to four years old, white children are preferring to play with other white children. And so, you know, they wouldn't be having this preference to play with with white um, with other um white children. Um, Studies show that by, I believe, five years old, white children tend to prefer white people in general. They have this general preference for for white people. Uh, An anti-racist white child would not have a preference. And what I mean by preference, more of a a superiority complex already at five years old um, for for white people. Uh, You know, a, a white child who who is being taught to be anti-racist would not believe that their white skin is more beautiful than, than the darker skin of, of potentially their classmates. Um, a, a white child would connect, would not be connecting black skin with dirt as some white children do. They two-year-old white children who are being anti-racist would not be going around telling my wife when uh, when when she was walking in an alley by her house that she's an N-word, right? That would those types of things, you know, wouldn't be happening if if we had if we're raising a white child to be anti-racist. Are there things that they could like be doing instead of not having? Oh, well, I think it's just like that you do not, so if, if you are a white family that's middle class or, or upper income, you know, teaching that child um, that they that they don't have more because they are. But more importantly, like I don't just buy books for Imani with black characters. I, I buy books like, you know, Where Are We From, which is about a, a small Latinx girl who's asking her her elder about where they're from, you know, so she can begin to understand notions of immigration status. I, mm-hmm. We bought her The Water Protectors, which is a book <laughs> about the, the native fight, of course, for, you know, against the pipeline. Right. Um, you know, we about a little girl who was teased because of her hijab. I mean, and, and so I think, you what, know, is this the book? white parents, especially if they live in homogenous towns and neighborhoods, you know, should be teaching, should be using books of different races, especially books that are showing your okay. Um, especially if those books are talking, are, ta- are basically showing stories of children of different races being degraded because of the color of their skin. You know, that's what we need to be teaching our children. Certainly white parents need to be teaching their white children. Yes, yes. I I think one thing I would add to that is is we need um, 
people to make interventions. Like we need white children to make interventions, to not laugh and go along with jokes that their friends are making, right? To see, you know, violence and then to say, stop that. Or to like what Juice did in that situation when the kid in his class called him girl to, to say, well, what's the problem with this particular thing? To call it into question, to call those jokes, you know, into question. Yes, all of that. Um, I want to ask this question. I'm really excited about this question because I have, I think I have an idea. Um, I'm really curious about what you think. I have a three and a half year old white son who is obsessed with police and jail. How do I, and this is all caps, how do I begin to frame the police in jail and good guys and bad guys to a three-year-old? This is from Danielle Swan. So one of the things that, you know, as you know, Derek has happened, you want to come back? Okay. <laughs> um, is, you know, we've been, you know, people all over the country have been demonstrating against police violence. And at many of these demonstrations, people have been subjected to police violence. And I think there are a number of videos that are showing police violence. And I think for a three and a half year old, there are some of the more milder sort of forms of police violence that you can show um, that child. So, and then you can, they can probably ask, well, why is the police officer pushing, why did they just walk by and push that girl to the ground? I suspect a three and a half year old will ask, and then that will allow you to talk about police violence and, and police brutality and make that case. Um, and Or you can essentially take her to a prison mm. and, and show the, you know, the inhumane conditions that, that people are forced to live in these, in these prisons. And, and again, bring, create the scenario that then allows her or him to ask those questions that you can then teach. Yes, yes. No, I think I hadn't thought about the, some of the videos, but um, that's so important. I, I love that question so much because one time I was taking my kids to school and I heard him put his dinosaur in jail. And I was like, do you know what I do for a living? You you want to have me out here looking bad in these streets, putting your dinosaurs in jail? Like, what, what did the dinosaur do? And he said he ate another dinosaur. And I was like, oh, cannibalism is a little bad. Like, I get it. I know. <laughs> but where, where did jail come from? And he said, Power Rangers. And like, in Power Rangers, he's like, do you know Power Rangers? And I was like, I've known Power Rangers since 1992. How do you know Power Rangers? But he learned from Power Rangers, jail is the concept of putting people in a cage. Because at the end of each episode, there is always a space villain who's in a jail. Wow. And so it's just like, I didn't, I knew that I had to keep my kids away from Paw Patrol. I didn't know I had to keep my kid away from Paw Patrol. Yes, chase all of them. Paw Patrol. No, I, I know, I know. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, this is why I think the work is so important of making those interventions because the children's books, you know, the cartoons, they default to characterizing very violent institutions as just normal or an integral part of our society. So I would, I would also add monitoring, like what your children is, is, is watching. You know, like I said, I learned the hard way. I need to preview books before I buy them for my kids. Cause there's this book that I really love called I like myself, you know, and it's about 
um, this this little black girl who talks about all the reasons why she likes herself. And then on like one of the pages, just like a random cop. And I was just like, why? What does this have to even do with the story? And just, you know, he's like, oh, there's a police officer in the book. Like, did you? I was like, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, I think in addition to what you said with exposure, you know, looking for children's books that tell alternative stories or real stories of, you know, our relationship to the carceral state. So Miriam Kaba has this incredible book called Missing Daddy. And it's about this little black girl whose father is incarcerated and she's reliving all these moments um, of, you know, how much she misses her daddy, what she misses about him and when she gets to go visit him. So we definitely need more literature like Anti-Racist Baby and Missing Daddy by Miriam Kaba and other books where children get to learn, um, yeah, what these systems um, look like. All right. Another exciting question. Give me one second. My phone locked up. Okay. What I, this is from Colleen, I think Aben. What I love to hear is how you address the class part of everything going on in a relationship to race. She's asking if to address the class part of what's going on with race? Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, I stand from the beginning, which was a history of, of racist and even anti-racist ideas, which really ended up showing racist. that... Yeah, racist. Um, which which ended up really showing that these racist ideas were were coming out of racist policies. Um, you know, I tracked really the entire history, and and what was fascinating, uh, you know, about writing that history is is that the origins of racism itself in the mid 1400s in, in Portugal uh, through the transatlantic slave trade are the very origins of capitalism. Mm. And, and so you're talking about the origins of racism and capitalism sort of emerging simultaneously. And then when you look at the history of, of, of both racism and, and capitalism, it's hard to really separate them. They're constantly reinforcing each other. And so, you know, it's, it's, when I sort of talk about, and, and I'm sure when other scholars talk about racial capitalism, we're not just using that term. Like it's literally has always been intersecting. And so that's not just an historical sort of analysis. It's an empirical one. You know, to be white, white people in this country, the median wealth of white families is 10 times the median wealth of black families. Or if you look at the more whiter nations and compare them to the more blacker nations, you have a massive wealth gap. You even have a wealth gap um, between lighter and darker people in Latin America. Um, and, and so, you know, obviously capital is global and classes are global and inequality is global and it's always been global. And and so you can't really sort of separate the two. And, and so to think of a <laughs> and and so I just tried to really explain that. And 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 that is one of the reasons why I, I'm really deliberate about ensuring that no one thinks that not only there's something wrong with 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 black people, but there's people who make the case that there's something wrong with impoverished black people or working class black people. Or even when white elites classify impoverished white people as white trash which is not just a racialized term. It's, you know, it's this sort of intersecting, I, 
Anyway, I think you understand what I'm saying. Yes, yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, in addition to um, saying from the beginning, if other people want to engage with racial capitalism, I would highly, highly recommend reading Cedric Robinson and Robin D.G. Kelly. I know Robin has a really um, great article in the Boston Review about what is racial capitalism that definitely helped me like walk through the steps of like, oh, like, you know, we get racism through like these class formations that were happening in like early Europe and how all of those things things definitely, um, I mean, are still, they concretize what we have today. And then Coates, Ta-Nehisi Coates has this, this really short line in between the world and me where he says, um, um, race is the child of racism, right? Not the father. We think, I know that at least for me, I hadn't really thought about like what, which one came first, right? So we have race because we have this broader category of, of racism, right? It's like that, like we have race because we needed reasons to separate people in order to exploit them. And, you know, the, you know, as I write in Stamp from the beginning, the first articulator of racist ideas was this Portuguese a writer who wrote a biography of Prince Henry's slave trading pioneering transatlantic slave trading in Africa. And in order to craft the, so he had these racist ideas about black people, but but he simultaneously created black people. <laughs> so he had, he started with the racist ideas and then created certainly race itself and simultaneously whiteness itself. Wow. Wow. Okay. I'm going to ask another question from M. Isabella. How has being a parent changed slash affected your analysis of racism? How has it changed the ways you think about strategies to combat it? Well, I think the the biggest way which it's changed me is I never, until I became a parent, thought about writing children's books. <laughs> Or, you know, I, I just never even considered, you know, as an academic, obviously, I, that's not something that I'll ever get credit for, you know, writing a, a children's book. Um, and so it's not something I ever thought about, you know, but but obviously, you know, when you when you become a parent and you want to have these conversations with your child, um, you know, I started thinking about, OK, you know, I started looking around at children's literature. I started studying um, the way in which racism affects children. I started trying to really understand when children first start internalizing racist ideas, all to arm me as a parent mm-hmm. to know what I'm basically up against and, 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 and how and why I need to fight to ensure she's, you know, Imani is being raised to, to, to be anti-racist. I didn't really think about this as much. Um, you know, before I became a parent. Yes, um, I know for me, I was I was pregnant during um, Michael Dunn's trial and George Zimmerman's trial. It was all sort of lining up around the same time. I think George Zimmerman's trial was like July 2013. I just found out that I was pregnant. Actually, I was I was two weeks pregnant when I found out. Um, when I was, I was actually in Boston. I was, <laughs> I was in Boston at the movie theater and can't remember where that street was, but we were leaving, me and my friends, we were leaving the movie theater and people were literally screaming in the streets. And I was just like, what's hap- what's going on? And it was George Zimmerman was found not guilty. 
And I just was terrified, terrified of, you know, I, at the time I just, you know, knew I was expecting, I wasn't sure quite yet, like all of what that meant, but I knew I immediately felt vulnerable. I felt vulnerable for my kid. And, um, I remember writing like a letter to him and just being like, you're going to thrive, like no matter what, and I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that you're protected. And I, as I, you know, he, he went to law school with me like he grew up on that campus right he was six months when I started law school right in the middle of the Ferguson uprising and I would get all these you know questions from professors or media people which was just what are you going to tell your son are you going to have the talk with your son what what are you going to say and I just always remember being like well what are you going to tell your kids what what are you going to tell your kids like it's not on me to tell my kid to to avoid racism like exactly 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 I wrote that in this article where I criticized you know President Obama's my brother Keith's initiative it was just like well Trayvon Martin's not the problem how do we stop creating George Zimmerman's you know, how, what are white people teaching their children to not grow up with such animus where they can go and hunt down a jogger who's running in a white neighborhood and shoot him? Right. And the talk can't just be a, a conversation between black people and their children. Right. It's, it's what Imani is saying. How do we take the burden off of being black and make sure we shift it to people perpetuating racism in this country? And so, yeah, being a parent has really like put me in a position where I don't even realize all the ways that race and gender is just so baked into like our society, but also what it's going to take to push back on that, to, to resist that. Um, and I think it's important that everyone is having some set of conversations with your children, and which, which is why your book is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask and get another question in here. I think you've answered this already. Besides talking to our children, what actions can we take with our children to live our beliefs and raise anti-racists? So, I mean, I, I think you actually helped. To, I think you answered this earlier when you mentioned how when you're in situations and you hear someone say something that's racist, that you as a parent, you express um, that there's a problem there, knowing that your child is listening to you and hearing you and hopefully will potentially model themselves after you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could bring your child to organizing meetings. You can bring your child to demonstrations. You can show your child you're donating to a particular organization. Um, you know, everything that you are doing, hopefully, to challenge racism, you can involve your child. You know, for instance, with me, you know, I, I try as often as possible to, to bring her, to bring Imani, um, or to sit her on my lap during virtual, uh, you know, events so that she can sort of see and be involved in some of the work that I'm doing. And I don't think we should shy away from, our, our kids may not fully understand it, but they'll grow to understand it. Um, and, and then also, you know, figure out ways for them to contribute. You know, if you, for instance, I mentioned donating, you know, your your child can, you know, if, if your child has, Imani has, when we moved to Boston, like she put some of her coins in a shoe so nobody would take her coins. 
And, you know, we can ask her, I'm donating money to this local Black Lives Matter organization. Would you like to donate some of your coins too? Here is the reason why I'm donating. You know, would you like to donate too? You know, these are the types of things we can do with our children. Yes. And just just a quick plug. One of my good friends, Amanda Alexander, who's in Detroit, earlier today, she shared this. And I thought this was literally the like the coolest thing ever. It says Saturday, June 20th from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Detroit Police Department, 1301 Third Avenue. Kids for Black Lives and Black Futures. Chalk and bubbles provided were masked. You know, it made me think, obviously, of the Children's March in the 1960s, where you have, you know, kids, Dick Gregory said, as young as four, in the jail cell with him, they were asking him, you know, he asked this little four-year-old, why are you in here? And the little four-year-old said, freedom. You know, so there are actions, right? Kids for Black Lives and Black Futures. That's one example. Another thing I know I've been getting asked, particularly in this moment, is just, you know, where are the opportunities for people to play? I think that is so. What you say, Mom? Read them. Read them. Feed them. them. What you say? She said, "Freedom." Freedom. Yes, freedom. Freedom. Um, Freedom. Freedom. There you go. (laughs) Um, I think it's. I think it's also very, very important that people also take the initiative. Like you don't have to wait to be invited to the to the protest that you want to go to. You don't have to wait to be invited to the march that you want to go to. You know, there are organizations all over the country. You know, the Movement for Black Lives is a coalition of 150 organizations all across the country who are engaging in protests and rallies and demonstrations for Juneteenth tomorrow, for example. So there's lots of activism. But if you happen to live in a place where there's not a lot of activism, I would encourage you, you know, you can be that person. You can call up friends and have a meeting. You can say, hey, you know, I really want my child to be anti-racist, anti-capitalist, to be trans-affirming. I want to figure out how to start, you know, start those set of conversations. Are you willing to join me? Are you willing to, you know, bring chalk and bring bubbles and have our children hit the streets? So you don't have to wait, you know, to be invited, you know, that changes, that change starts with you, starts with me, starts with Ibram, starts with Imani, it starts with all of us, right? It starts with all of us. It does. And if I can just add one quick thing about this, is that, you know, a century ago, um, there were people who would bring their three-year-olds and two-year-olds and one-year-olds and five-year-olds to massive lynching spectacles. And, and and why? Because they were very deliberate about teaching their children about white supremacy. They, they were very deliberate about teaching their children to demonize and dehumanize black people. And and, and so I, I think that it's critically important for us to realize that it's just as important for us to be serious about teaching our children about the humanity of black people. Um, yeah. You know, it's critically important for us to to teach our children um, to never demonize any racial group. And and these are things we have to deliberately do um, in the way other people historically have deliberately done the very opposite. Yes, yes, that's such a good point. And and actually, it relates to a couple of questions I've been getting about white teenagers 
specifically? Like, how do you engage? It's, you know, talking to someone who's young and you are in control of their tablet and their books, it may be easier to have that set of influence. You know, but once our kids start to age, you know, we we have to let our hearts walk outside our bodies, right? And they get introduced to so much stuff. So if you have any people, the people are demanding to know, you know, what, how do we have this conversation with teenagers? Well, I mean, I don't want to give a shameless sort of plug for another book, um, but, you know, one of the more talented, uh, if not the most talented um, writers for black writers for teens is Jason Reynolds, who's written book after book that are just gripping sort of the coolest sort of novels that that talk about race and racism. And he actually recently remixed Stamp from the Beginning for for kids between 12 and 18 years old. And so yet again, it's a, it's another book that you can just hand to a young person and trust me, like they're going to dig this book. Like, you know, and the way that it's written, it speaks to them. It's written in their language. It's it's not a lecture book. And it, and even Jason starts the book by saying this is not a history book <laughs> because, you know, if you're 13, you're like, man, history is boring. I don't want to read history. And um, and we also, you know, very keen and Jason was very keen on ensuring that that the book really was relevant to these young people. And so there's so many books like that. I mean, you know, Nick Stone's book, Jacqueline Woodson's book, Andrew Thomas's books. I mean, you know, this is I mean, this is one of the greatest periods in, in, in history for books written for teens about black life or about racism. I mean, you know, the, the the incredible collection of writers, you know, right now, um, you know, just go out and look for them and 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 bring those books to your kids. And I and I I just bet you that they're gonna le- they're gonna like at least one of those writers. You know, every one of those writers, uh, I'm thinking about Elizabeth Esvito as well. I mean, every one of those writers um are gonna be able, at least one of them will be able to capture your team. Yes, yes. Jacqueline Woodson, I, oh my gosh, reading her books, you know, even as an adult reading her books, I'm just always deeply moved that she had this book. Can't, I think I was in high school or middle school when it came out, but it was called If You Come Softly. And the and it's that book if uh, around police violence and racism. It was just, it was, I mean, it feels, uh, to, to say like, you know how Toni Morrison can teach you about race without ever having to say race? That's what if you come softly, different me as a children was beautiful. And then Brown Girl Dream. I mean, she just, yes, absolutely can teach you about race without having to tell you it's about race. And then Michael Bennett, um, his book, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable, I really enjoyed. I bought copies for all of my siblings. And I know that there's like a youth and young adult version. Um, I think that's also through Haymarket that that came out. So definitely there are books out there. Um, anything besides like the books and the reading that white teenagers can can do to be anti-racist? Well, I think I think that teenagers, you can encourage teenagers to be involved in racial justice activism in their community. And and there are so many teenagers around the country right now who are organizing yes. right now who are organizing because they're, you know, against the murder 
of Breonna Taylor in Louisville right now who can relate to what happened to Ahmaud Arbery. And, and, and so you can encourage your child to join those organizations yes. that are made up of teens in their own communities because they probably exist. Yes, that's such a good point. Yes. Okay, let's get a couple more questions in. So what other, oh, so there have been some demands for, from people for you to read the book or actually. Oh, you want me to read the book? Okay. Yes, yes, how's that? All right, Imani, I'm going to read the book. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. All right, Anti-Racist Baby. All right, who's on the cover? Imani. That's Imani. Okay. Imani, you're famous. You got you to gotta give me a signed copy for Juice. All right. Uh, Anti-Racist Baby is bred, not born. Anti-racist baby is mazed to make society transform. Babies are taught to be racist or anti-racist. There's no neutrality. Take these nine steps to make equity a reality. You want to close it? All right, cool. One, open your eyes to all skin colors. One. Anti-racist baby learns all the colors, not because race is true. If you claim to be colorblind, you deny what's right in front of you. Let's go to the next page. Oh, you want to sit down? Okay. What number is that? Four. You know what number that is. <laughs> Two, use your words to talk about race. No one will see racism if we only stay silent. If we don't name racism, it won't stop being so violent. <laughs> Point at policies as the problem, not people. Some people get more while others get less because policies don't always grant equal access. What number is that? Shout, there's nothing wrong with the people. Shout it. There's nothing wrong with the people. There's nothing wrong with the people. Even though all races are not treated the same. What? We are what all human. Me? I know, all the hearts, yes. Even though all races are not treated the same, we are all human, anti-racist anti baby can proclaim. Five. Five. Celebrate all our differences. Anti-racist baby doesn't see certain groups as better or worse. Anti-racist baby Anti-racist baby loves a world that's truly diverse. Six. Six. Knock down the Six. <laughs> knock down the stack Six. of cultural blocks. Six. Okay, okay, okay. Anti-racist baby appreciates how groups speak, dance, and create as they choose. Anti-racist baby welcomes all groups, voicing their unique views. What number is that? Four. Oh, you know, that's not four. Seven. Seven. Confess when being racist. Nothing disrupts racism more than when we confess the racist ideas that we sometimes express. Grow to be an anti-racist. Anti-racist baby is always learning, changing, and growing. Anti-racist baby stays curious about all people and isn't all-knowing. What number is that? 
I know it does look like a P. Nine, believe we shall overcome racism. Anti-racist baby is filled with the power to transcend, my friend, and doesn't judge a book by its cover, but reads until the end. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. You want to clap? Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving the people what they wanted. Um, do you have any final thoughts or last words you'd like to leave people with as we wrap up? Oh, well, just, you know, thank you everyone for, for joining us. Thank you, Derica. It's, you know, it was, just, it was just truly special for me to be able to, to write this book and even for Imani to, to see herself in it. And I'm sure other girls and boys, cause, and even, uh, are going to see themselves in the book. The beauty of the book is, as you'll see, I, I don't know, you couldn't see it too closely, but, you know, there's boys and girls of, of every race. There's love. There's queer love. There's interracial love. There's black love. There's there's Latinx love. And and really, the book is founded on love and really based on love because, to, to you know, it, being anti-racist is, is really about love. People are on the streets right now because they love. You know, people want to transform this country because they love. And we should be wanting to raise our babies to be anti-racist because because we love them. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Anything you want to say, Imani? Um, I am to say. I am to say. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. You're so so welcome. Such a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Ebron. Um, before we close, I just want to remind people, if you are in a position to make a donation, no matter how small, please, please, please consider giving to Haymarket and to the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. You can also purchase copies of Anti-Racist Babies and Ebron's other books from Labyrinth Books. Um, you can find the instructions in the chat box below. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning, there's some very exciting events that are coming up. On June 23rd, there's Bettina Love, Goldie Muhammad, and Dina Simmons, and Brian Jones. Um, Aid to Abolition on June 25th, I'll be back in conversation with all of my comrades about police and prison abolition. Um, Eddie Glaude and Dr. Cornell West on July 1st. Thank you so much to Ashley Jenkins for live captioning this event and to Haymarket for organizing. Thanks to Labyrinth and to all of you who took time to join this call. Really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of the evening. Okay. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.